0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Today is a episode where we're going to take a look at the region specifically on India because I have with me Dr. Aparna Pandey, someone I worked with previously, a good friend and a scholar who understands the region better than most people at least that I know of. Um, she is director of the Initiative on the Future of India and South Asia at the Hudson Institute um, and focuses on South Asia particularly in terms of its foreign and regional policy between India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the broader region. She was born in India and has a PhD in political science from Boston University in the United States, um, a town that I also went to school with, so we share that familiarity as well. And she's written a recently published book, which is fantastic and fascinating, which is Making India Great, The Promise of a Reluctant Global Power. I just finished reading it last week, and I asked Dr. Pandey to come on the show and talk to us about the book, her perspective on where India is and where it's headed, and things that concern her, which she speaks about and writes about pretty openly in the book itself. So, Dr. Pandey, first of all, thank you so much for taking out the time and joining us here on Pakistanamy.
1: Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure, Sort of, you know, um, I'm actually, I would say I'm very proud of where you are today. I remember when we first met and I always believe that Uzair will do very well. So it's wonderful what you are doing. Good luck. And it's a pleasure to be with you on your show.
0: Yeah, part of the battalion in that summer. And I remember (laughs) (laughs) having to go to the Library of Congress and start doing research. So that was a great experience.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Let's let's start with the book, and I want to may, maybe quote something that stood out to me while I was reading it, which is where you say that, quote, the recent focus on religious and cultural disputes could end up reversing India's success in nation building more than uh, in nation building since independence, and that's really concerning, and it's something people here in the U.S., in India, elsewhere, talk about frequently. Why are you so concerned about what's going on in India today?
1: Um, Thanks, Uzair. It's a great question. Um, I'd say there are two reasons. One, as an Indian, I am concerned what happens in my country of birth. Um, And as a scholar, I am concerned in what happens in a country that I follow. Um, Sort of, you know, both the scholar and the Indian in me believes in India's potential. The fact that, you know, for the few decades now, people have spoken about India as a rising or a global power or a future great power. Um, So India has promised and this promise is old. It goes back to, uh, to India's independence, and actually even before that. It's a country which encompasses 17% of the world's population. Um, it's a country which is the wor- which will soon be the world's most populous nation. Um, sort of was scheduled to be the world's third largest economy. Um, but it still is, uh, ranks fourth in the Global fire- Firepower Index a Nuclear Weapons Country half of its, or, you know, of its population is under the age of 29. Um, it is a large workforce, 500 million plus. So it's, it's a democracy for the last seven decades. Um, it's an ally of Western countries. So yes, what happens in India matters and what happens in India will be watched around the world. And my concern is that there has been for the last few years an increasing focus on religious and cultural disputes. And I believe that could end up, unless it is stopped, reversing India's success. Why do I say that? It's because India was one of the few post-colonial countries that actually, uh, sort of, you know, did not adopt the path which many others did. It's multi-ethnic, it's multi-religious, it appeared to forge, it forged national unity uh, without force, without military dictatorship. Uh, It sought to educate its people, uh, build an economy, despite being a chaotic democracy, and it remained a democracy uh, for the last seven decades. Society is plural, it's open, it's tolerant, it has a very large number of minorities. And its leaders sought to advance India's interest by, by building relations with all countries around the world. Unlike many of its neighbors, um, including Pakistan, India did not initially insist on creating a falsified national narrative through its textbooks. Rather, its education actually spoke of 5,000 years of Indian history. And so you you created a literate population which actually believed in India's multicultural, multi-religious history. However, what has happened in the last few years is that they, there's sort of more of a focus on writing the wrongs of the past, rewriting history, uh, you know, trying to sort of put minorities in their place. And so the discussion and the debate in a country that, should, that wants to be and believes it's a future global power is not on economics, it's not on military and defense, it's not on grand strategy It is rather on on the past. It is rather on cultural and religious issues, which are divisive. And so, sort of, you know, this is what worries me. And my argument would be that India's desire for global preeminence, India's desire for recognition by others of its great power status, would require that the rest of the world be comfortable with India's sense of self and how India views itself and the quest for authenticity through pre-muslim pre-western hindu traditions turning back the clock on the status of minorities women lower castes and an excessively inward focus though popular at home will actually not sit well with india's plans for global greatness
0: so i think that's that's a very, couple of interesting things that i want to maybe push back upon playing the devil's advocate here. Someone who you know will listen to you here may push back and say, well, if India is growing and it is trying to claim its its place in the world, it should proudly and openly and vociferously talk about its own identity and that nationalism is actually good for India. It gives Indians the confidence to compete with the rest of the world. Um, how do you respond to that perspective, whether it's on the economic nationalism front or even in terms of the Hindutva majoritarian nationalism front that is pretty much out there in the open now?
1: Sure. So, um, my argument would be you know, I'll throw it right back at you. Has India's economic growth increased in the last six years? Has majoritarianism actually boosted India's economic growth? No. So, if we look at 2014, Let's say 8%, around 8% India was growing 2013-2014. India's economic growth pre-COVID was around 2 or 3%. Some economists were even saying 1%. Um, India suffered its worst economic uh, recession in 2020. Yes, the pandemic worsened it. But the fact is you were growing at 2 to 3% and then it dropped to, you know, let's say, um, overall about negative 8% according to IMF figures. Let's say we stick to the IMF figures and next year India grows at 11%, which technically means you're growing at 3%. 3% isn't the path to global greatness. To become a regional power, forget about a global power, India will need to grow at minimum 6%, ideally 8 to 10%. There are only three countries in the world which have grown for three decades consistently: China, South Korea, and Taiwan. India has not been able to sustain six, seven, eight percent more than a few years, and especially not in the last six years. So, economic nationalism, whether it's Make in India or Atmanirbhar Bharat, protectionism, uh, more rules again—you know, data privacy rules. Uh, you know, more regulations against foreign investment is not the way to, to global economic growth. If, it, if, if India truly wanted to grow economically right now, why doesn't it attract the companies which are leaving China? Why are they going to Vietnam and Philippines and even Bangladesh, but not coming to India? Because they don't see India as providing enough incentives. So I would say that economic nationalism, actually India grew more when India liberalized and India appears to be going back to a more semi-socialist protectionism than, you know, which isn't benefiting. So I'd say economic nationalism doesn't really help. Coming to the other side, um, I would argue that there have always been two imaginings or ideas of India right from, you know, the 19th century onwards, the belief that that um, Indian nationalism, or what it means to be an Indian, is a civilizational tent. Uh, Doesn't matter what religion, caste, ethnicity you belong to, you are India if your forefathers were born in that country. The other side, there's a belief in majoritarianism, meaning that there needs to be one religion, one culture, uh, one history, one language. There's always been a conflict between the two. Um, is, Is majoritarian identity helping India? Electorally, yes, um, I would say electoral politics, identity politics helps. So you get, uh, so you, so political parties can come to power and retain electoral support. But does it actually help in, in reducing societal conflict? No. Uh, is it helping in investment in education and healthcare and human capital? Not yet to be seen. Is it helping in economic growth? No, and are you spending more on military? Definitely no. I know you followed India's budget. Um, India has not upped its defense expenditure. At a time when China sits on its border, yes, there have been some changes, a little more to capital, but a lot of India's budget goes for salaries and pensions. If you actually want to be able to stand up to China and play a bigger role and project power, you need to spend more then 1.6% or so. Similarly, healthcare, India has put in a lot of money in this budget, but the majority is for vaccines, right? It is not for primary healthcare, it is not for boosting the healthcare infrastructure. Um, Human capital skills. India has 500 million um, workforce approximately. Why don't the champions of economic nationalism actually boost India's skills Um, 5% to 7% of India's workforce is skilled. 60% of China's is. So I would say that, you know, nationalism doesn't necessarily result in economic growth, military power. It does help on the electoral front, but I don't see any other benefits. If you want to be a regional or a global power, you need to actually, um, you know, be more open (laughs) and bring in foreign investment and allow sort of, you know, provide an open society for entrepreneurship.
0: You mentioned entrepreneurship and and growing the economy. And in the book, that is something that, you know, I found as a common strand running throughout in terms of even your proposed solutions to where India needs to go. Um, What I found super fascinating was your perspective that even though Prime Minister Narendra Modi, when he first came to power, the idea was minimum governance, boost the gro- economy, grow and like you know, end the UPA2 corruption era scandals. Um, but you argue that one of the things people need to understand about India is that wealth creation is looked down upon civilizationally. Um, I want to push back on that, but first I would love to hear what you mean by that and why is that so important for people to understand. And secondly, to that point, what was super interesting to me was that the right wing in India, for example, compared to the right wing in the in England or in the United States or elsewhere, is not pro-business. And you link that back to the civilizational aspect. So help the listener understand why this is such an important point for people to, to acknowledge and, and understand.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, Jose. So um, I would sort of, you know, uh, the argument of my book is that You know, if you look at India, India is in many ways contradiction, right, so we are a country which has a space program uh, an indigenous nuclear program. But if you look at the manufacturing, which should, by default, be a part of it, India still doesn't have a razor or a fountain pen associated with it.
0: I would even um, argue, even even in the space program, for example, India's companies are nowhere in the global no, map in no, commercial no, satellite are. or commercial yeah, no. space.
1: I mean, and then look at manufacturing for a country which is 1.3 billion, uh, which is a very large workforce. You would by default presume that the largest sector should be manufacturing, right? Labor intensive. What is India's manufacturing? Dominated by what we call MSMEs, micro, small, medium enterprises. So there's no economies of scale. The smaller you are, the more benefits and less tariffs and more subsidies you get. The larger you are, the more regulations, more tariffs, almost no subsidies you get. So you are not incentivizing manufacturing in a country which actually should have incentivized manufacturing. Um, You know, move on to sort of, you know, the, the argument I make is I sort of, you know, I see it as primarily cultural. And the, uh, the reason is, you know, what is wealth generation? How did it arise? It arose in a certain culture in the West, especially. It arose through Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment. You had a bourgeoisie, a middle class, which pushed back against the state, and forced the state to provide, you know, a sort of, you know, rules, regulations, sort of allowed the spread of free market capitalism. India's had challenges. One, India became democracy. It became a democracy and it embraced a democracy, but, at, but it did, at this sort of before industrialization took place in the country. So, you know, you have a political architecture, which in many ways constrains the growth of capitalist institutions. So a government needs to redistribute before a government can actually generate wealth. Secondly, in the Indian culture at its core does not value wealth generation. I do not mean you know, making money for myself and for my family. I do not mean you know, storing gold. I mean wealth generation in the sense of a culture which actually believes that you know, increasing wealth and being wealthy and making money is prop, you know, like the Protestant work ethic that you make money, everybody makes money. It's not something to look down upon. Look at public polls in India. Individuals may want to be wealthy. That is different from wealth generation. There's a certain skepticism of the power of market forces. There's a certain belief that you, know, you should not flaunt your wealth. And I think it is civilizational. It's not just India. I believe the entire subcontinent has a, you know, there is, you don't understand the, the principles of market economics. So you pass laws because of, you know, sort of the one example I'll give is the uh, other laws uh, for protection of cows. I own a Mac, Uzair, I don't know what laptop you own, but I own a Mac. Now when when the Mac gets old, I would at some stage like to sell it off or give it away. What is the use of owning an asset? If there is no sort of, you know, I can't sell it off, give it away or dispose of it in some way. So you're passing laws without really being concerned about the impact on economic activity. You have state owned enterprises, still have public sector enterprises, which prevent competition. You, have, you encourage protectionism um, to the extent of actually scaring off foreign direct investment. So you are not, whether you are the BJP or you are the Congress or any other party, the only party India has had in its 70 year history which was truly, uh, you know, sort of at, at its core capitalist minded or free market was the Swatantra party. And that didn't really have a base. That was India's first and to some extent only real uh, free market, pro-free market or pro-capitalist party. Most Indian political parties believe it is important to be pro-poor. Most Indian political parties do do have a socialist core. Most of them would like to support the small business, small mom and pop, not the large Uh, business companies. And here, I sort of, you know, I know you you may say that that India has large uh, conglomerates from Ambani, uh, you know, Reliance, you have Birlas, you have Tata's. But that I would sort of say that, yes, there are many millionaires and maybe a few billionaires in India. But crony capitalism is not real capitalism. Russia has kleptocrats. China has millionaires and billionaires. Brazil has millionaires. Does that necessarily make all of them free market capitalist economies? It does not.
0: And I think that again, there's the contradictions there right. you mentioned cow and, and you mentioned it in the, the cow laws in, in India in your book, and you know that was happening at the same time the government was talking about boosting leather exports. Yeah, so absolutely. you know
1: your sort of beef exports. India used after Brazil, India was the second largest exposure of beef. And that's a huge market for India. But no, if you can't, if I can't even walk with a cow on the street, how am I going to be able to dispose of that asset?
0: Yeah. And so do you think that then also bleeds into the political economy? I think it bleeds into political economy a couple of ways. And I would love your response on that. One is that, you have this fear of being labeled as a suit boot ki sarkar. It happened with mm-hmm. Congress. The BJP did it really well. Now it's happening to the BJP with the farmer laws. Even today, when the budget came out, Twitter, social media trends were all about Adani and Ambani and buy something for sale for something, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, so that's one. And the second is this idea that, you know, because redistribution happened before generation of significantly more wealth, Um, you have this patronage connection between politics and the voter. And that means that the politician now has a fear that if they remove the need for that patronage, i.e. through wealth creation, as you argue, and I I agree with you on that, Mm -hmm. then that power goes away. How strong do you think those two things are in terms of influencing policymaker decisions?
1: So um, I agree on both things you said. So first, I will sort of, you know, the first question you asked, I think part of the problem and again this is cultural at some level it's sort of you know i always felt and i make the argument in the book that as indians uh, maybe at some level we have yet to find a balance between a philosophical debate and a conversation on a practical matter so you know philosophical debate and you know conversations need to take place in the venue that they're supposed to be taking place in so if it's about laws and legislation it should be the parliament if it's about, you know, uh, sort of, let's say, just a philosophical debate, should India be this or should India be that? It can take place in a university, it can take place anywhere. Um, The problem is that when you bring in emotion, when you bring in, you know, history, when you bring in, you know, um, and you are unable to um, sort of, you know, and the example, I'll use an example here. Um, I'm sure you followed um, the sort of, you know, uh, the, the protests which, which took place around the film Padmavat a few years ago, and I use that in my book. Um, yes, sort of, you know, so it was, it's a book made in sort of, it, it's a film uh, produced in the 21st century, which is based on a, sort of, you know, something which was written in the 14th century about something which happened in the 12th century. Yes, you may agree or disagree, but you are shutting down one of your largest cities. You are losing productivity, you are sending a sort of a message to the world that this is how it reacts. I asked somebody, would would Los Angeles shut down? Because some people had a problem with a a Hollywood film made. No, you won't shut down a city. You may go to court, you may produce a new film, which has a totally, which portrays the same issue in a different way.
0: You may publish scathing reviews about the book in media outlets on Don't go
1: watch it. Tell people don't go watch the film. That's the best way because the producer will lose money. But shutting down a city because you believe that that film dishonors you. Or I will give a more recent example of Tandav, uh, the show on Netflix for which Netflix is getting pushback. Uh, How can a show... How it was can...
0: Amazon. Sorry, quick. It Sorry, was the uh, Amazon, Am- and they had to retract, uh, uh, issue yes. an apology, and stuff, right?
1: Yeah. So, how can a show or a film or a book dishonor a culture or a civilization which is five thousand years old? And so, the sort of you know, you need sort of that. The what that does is that it prevents actual proper, you know, rational discussion on issues. So that's my answer to the to the first part of your question. Um, Sorry, you say the second question was
0: the second one was around patronage and the link between politicians ah, okay. having yes. using yes. patronage as a means to get
1: votes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, the example you gave, and let's use the farmer protests and the agrarian laws. Now, in principle, the farmer, the the the, the agriculture agricultural sector needs reforms, and there is a lot in the farm laws which is good. The problem is that you know, all states of India are different. The agricultural practices and all of them are different. The what they grow is also very different. Um, And I think the problem here is that one, it's political, right? So when you are in power, you, you, you you support something which you would have opposed when you are out of power. And in India, the sort of the polarization has increased. So anything which the BJP does is bad. Anything which the Congress had done is bad. So there's that part of it. The second is actually to do with state level problems, which is that Punjab and Haryana have, are are different from Bihar or from UP or Kerala. And the reason I give the example is uh, in 2000, I mean, about six or seven or more years ago, the date I've forgotten, Bihar abolished um, the APMC's, the Agricultural Product Marketing Committees. Uh, in the hope that the private sector would come in and purchase goods Uh, purchase private sector did not come in so you know it's an example which people used to say that why would the private sector want to purchase wheat and rice it would be interested in purchasing commercial products Um, Cashew grain, you know, like fruits and nuts, you know, maybe even, you know, fruits like vegetables, you know, cotton and things like that. Why would it purchase? And why would it purchase at a set price, which would ensure that the farmer would produce? So there is that. Maybe if the the government had gone with something like, you know, let the states decide what they want. But at some level ensure that the, the farmer who's producing for a developing country, which 1.3 billion, billion people, one fourth below the poverty line, you need to ensure that there's enough food grain in the country. The third part is, is also is in some ways to do with the uh, with, with what you said about suit boots or and what I call this, this desire to be pro, pro poor or socialist, semi-socialist. That sort of, that is a problem which which, which impacts every political party in India. That's a legacy of India's national movement. That's a legacy of Indian ideological thinking over the decades. And part of the reason why I feel India will always have a cultural challenge to economic growth. Because at the end of the day, the belief is that you need to be pro-poor, you need to be semi-socialist, you need to regulate the economy. The commanding has the economy must be in the hands of the state because the market does not know what to do. So you will keep public sector enterprises. Uh, You will sort of, you know, your laws need to be tailored both in their practical consequence and in the ideology to uh, to be reflective of the poorest person on the street uh my argument would be why if that was so why hasn't it why is it that after seven decades of poverty alleviation programs one-fourth of India's population is still below the poverty line there's something seriously wrong with a policy which has not been able to pull more people and second part more India was able to pull more people out of poverty in the two decades after liberalization than it was in its previous five decades
0: no, I think that's a very important point, and even the Chinese example where they claim to have eradicated poverty, even if you take don't take that at face value and discount it, the, the gains are there for everyone to see, and that is market-led policies in a communist regime with Chinese characteristics, but the, the, the evidence is there for everyone to see. How do you then see things moving forward domestically, and we can then switch to foreign policy as well, because I want your perspective on that topic too, but... You have here a government that is politically very strong. It loves to project strength. Um, it has started, or at least it, towards the end of 2020 in the pandemic, made a second attempt of reforms. It's facing resistance in some areas, but even today's budget speech talked about privatizing assets, yeah. production-linked incentives, et cetera. But it keeps going back and forth like a pendulum between what it wants to do, what you know, between this market-led value creation versus the socialism that's inherent in the system. And there's majoritarianism that's growing in the country, no doubt, and even the farmers face this with being Khalistani and anti-national, et cetera. How, does, how do things move forward from here? I mean, my personal view on this is that Prime Minister Modi still has immense political capital. It's about using it in the right way, um, but he's not seemed keen to do that, which you know makes me scratch my head because I'm like, how much more power do you want? Like power to what end? So where do you see things going, at least in the domestic front?
1: So um, I agree with you on most. I mean, I would say, um, you know, the prime minister has uh, still retains, you know, as much support today as he did a few years ago. Uh, So his personal popularity is very high. Um, His record on economics, however, has taken a beating. I mean, the latest polls do show that, that is the area where people, you know, rank him and and his government the lowest and that's because india has been hurting and more or less since 2016 the demonetization the impact of demonetization the economy has really not recovered from that uh, because as you know most of the economy is is unorganized right um, and so it has and not really been...
0: quickly i would sure. love you you know as you share your comments would love your comment on this as well like It's more about self-inflicted goals with this government than anything else, demonetization, GST rollout, complicated. Even the lockdown with the pandemic was not planned. It was just announced and four hours or so were given to say, you go in lockdown. So Mm -hmm. share your thoughts on that as well.
1: Um, I would say, you know, it reflects, um, you know, great ideas, terrible implementation. Um, And, you know, so, you know, tactical sort of, you know, There's sort of, you know, somebody could be good at an idea or a tactic, but really terrible at strategy um, and not very good at planning long term, right? So a lot of it shows that. I mean, and you can see that. I mean, uh, one example I have used in my book is that of, you know, um, the Kumbh Mela. Um, As you know, it's, you know, um, it's uh, it's a religious festival for Hindus, which takes place in, in four cities across India, normally every six years and then every 12 years. Uh, whichever state it takes place in North India is able to actually provide everything from security, law and order to infrastructure, uh, to travel. And there is no problem, no incident takes place. But the Indian government and Indian states are unable to provide law and order, basic infrastructure, health, water, sanitation uh, to their people for the last seven decades in most parts of the country. it's sort of, you know, there is a, um, there's an inability to translate ideas and small level mission projects into something which is bigger. Second, there is a sort of, you know, I'd say demonetization um, in many ways reflects an inability to understand market economics and an inability to understand how, how, the, how, the, how the economy grows and how the economy functions. Taking away money in a cash economy, which is eighty-seven percent cash, and not replacing it on time with uh, with sort of with with those banknotes, um, sort of you know is is a terrible failure. How could you not understand that people? You can't just get people. Okay, I'll take your money away, and tomorrow Ozer cannot. Okay, I'll take Ozer's iPhone away. As of tomorrow, he has to go back to a landline. What if Ozer doesn't have a landline? So it's like it's depriving the sort of, you know, it's a b- idea which was basically meant to reduce, um, you know, black market or, bl- or black money or corruption, um, but it targeted the entire economy. And so it hurt that in an in a economy which is primarily unorganized and an economy where, where, where most of your manufacturing is MSMEs, which means that they hire less than hundred people, maybe 20 people, which also means that they don't have the paperwork um, and, they, and they are based on cash, not on credit. It means you are destroying everything they are doing. Then on top of that, in six months later, you are putting GST, which by default can only be done by people who have a proper system, not based on cash, based on credit. So you, are hit, you, are, you, didn't, you don't understand how, what your economy is made of. You would like it to be something else. And you believe that these sudden reforms will transform economy. Doesn't really happen that way. Like the agricultural reforms. Idea is great, but have you actually looked at each state and seen the impact of these reforms in states like Bihar or Kerala? I'll throw Kerala in there. Um, that state again, uh, you know, doesn't have APMC's, but that state moved to commercial production, which in effect means that you will need to, you know, you you need to depend on other states for food grains, right? So the farmers may be doing well who are in commercial agriculture, but if every state moved to commercial agriculture, who is going to produce uh, wheat and food grain for everybody?
0: That was the one thing I always found interesting. I remember like, you know, working with you at Hudson and then at Albright stormbridge and looking at, you know, the initial goals of the Modi government about doubling farmer incomes. And I always found it very, very curious because I was like, there is an inherent disconnect between doubling farmers' incomes and controlling inflation, which the RBI was trying to do at the time. And again, I think that's another case in point of not understanding market economics to set a goal and then not worry about what happens on the flip side.
1: No, no, because you believe it will work out right you believe that in the end things will be all right, Um, you know sort of. uh, Look, uh, look at you know Labor market reforms, you know, either you have such excessive reforms that nobody can hire or fire, if you have more than 100 people or you say we will have no mark, no market, no Labor market regulation. Both of those are problematic right you need Labor market regulation, but you don't need such excessive regulation that. In a country which needs a labor-intensive manufacturing, you are basically encouraging, you're basically discouraging labor-intensive manu- manufacturing.
0: Really quickly, what what's your view on the fact that there is no battle of ideas going on at the level that you're describing in India? Not just on the BJP level. I look at the Congress or other, you know, it's the only national opposition party. Um, there is frankly no vision coming out of there. and how does that concern you because to me it does you cannot have a, a democracy of over 1 billion people as as majoritarian as it is becoming today, not have a robust opposition that, that's not just able to you know prevent certain things in Parliament but also put forward a new vision. Do you find that concerning as well?
1: Yes, it is. And um, you know the, the, the problem there is that, know part of it is um that you know coming up sort of you you need you need opposition party which is you know which is there in the parliament or legislature you need opposition party which is there in every state uh you need opposition party which puts forth no new ideas uh, which isn't just sort of you know countering or reacting to something which the government is doing second you need an um an ecosystem which allows You to express uh, an idea contrary to that idea. I mean, dissent is at the heart of democracy. Uh, That is what both you and I have been taught when we studied political science, that without dissent, there is no democracy. Uh, Without an opposition party, there should be no government. I mean, uh, if we go back to the mother of all democracies, uh, in Britain, it used to be Her Majesty or His Majesty's opposition because the notion was that you needed an opposition party to be able to sort of, you know, so that the government could function properly. What has happened in the last few years, you know, I would say not just in India, but in many other countries, many other democracies is that a combination of, you know, social media, combination of, you know, government, uh, repression of, of, you know, fundamental, sort of, you know, uh, freedom of speech and expression has basically ensured that it is either you are with us or you are against us. So anything which opposes us is by default anti-national or anti-patriotic. It is no longer a belief that democracy, should everybody should be allowed to express their opinion. And that means that ideas for the future do not come up. The only idea which comes up is You know, are we with you or are we against you because that is how you made it out to be the discussion of economics can't can't take place discussion on military or defense can't take place discussion on foreign policy can't take place discussion on social challenges can't take place even discussions on religion can't take place because it is it's an environment where you feel under siege or you feel under threat. So, it's a combination of factors which are preventing an actual discussion, because it is, it is basically just a polarized society, a polarized polity, um, and a polarized media at all levels.
0: I think that's a good segue into foreign policy because you mentioned it's happening all over the world. We're sitting here in the United States, January 6th is fresh, at least in my mind, I'm pretty sure it is in your mind as well. And America has a lot of introspection to do. One thing that, you know, over the last four years and for the last many years before that has been consistent is the long embrace of the United States and India. Um, long time coming. You write in your book about how John Ken, you know, Kennedy and before that as well, the United States viewed India as an ally. Um, did not really happen because of you know non-alignment, etc. But clearly now we are in this US-China rivalry and India is being seen as a, a, a balancer to China in the region and beyond. Um, how do you see this relationship evolving, particularly at a time when the United States is trying to rest its own authoritarian demons to bed. Um, but in India, clearly it seems like, at least you, you mentioned that poll, it says that after Narendra Modi, Yogi Adityanath is the second most popular leader from the BJP. So how do these things uh, impact what is uh, an important and uh, strategically vital relationship for both countries?
1: Um, thanks, Uzer. Um, I would say You know, at its core, the relationship is strong and it has been, especially for the last two decades, I'll say from President Clinton onwards. uh, You know, every American president since then has visited India, Uh, you know, sort of, you know, one has visited India twice as president, but every one of them has visited India. Uh, They've all championed relations with India uh, because they believe that it is important for US national interests. So the strategic dimension of the relationship is strong and I see it remaining strong primarily because um, at its core US you know, regional interests are based on US global interests. And with the US China peer rivalry taking place, the United States is as keen today as it was a few years ago that it has more allies and partners and India um, is strategically located. Um, India and China India has viewed China as a rival going back to the 1950s um, and India is the only other country with that larger population sitting on, Ch- on the Chinese border and which has potential to actually, if it, ups, if it ups its game on economic, military and projecting power, could actually be one sort of, you know, a really good ally and partner um, in the Indo-Pacific, in the, is- in the Asian context. So that dimension remains, and you can see that in if you look at the India-U.S. relationship. I have always believed there are three dimensions. There's a defense military dimension. There's the economic, and then there's the you can call it people-to-people. You can call it values-based, however you like to refer to it. The first one is actually the strongest today. Um, you know, India is a major defense partner. Uh, India is at the core of the U.S. national security strategy. Uh, The Indo-Pacific by default means India is going to be a part of it Um, and that emphasis has continued in the Biden administration with the Indo-Pacific coordinator now. Um, India signed all the foundational or enabling military agreements with with the United States, the military exercises, quad, um, and uh, from almost no defense trade, the two countries have around 20 billion plus in defense trade today, a close counter-terrorism intelligence relationship. So that dimension remains and I see it, you know, getting stronger in the years ahead. The second part, the economic dimension has always had a friction going back years. And that's because India's protectionism is not new. Uh, India's tariffs are not new. It has cut them down over the last two decades, but um, they, it hasn't cut them down as much as the United States would like it to. And in the last few years with Make in India and Atmanirbhar Bharat, there has been a slide towards protectionism. Um, and, you know, more tariffs. There's also been, you know, a sl- sort of the problems that all American companies face on the digital arena, the digital privacy rules, whether you are a foreign portfolio investor or you are an internet company or a social media company or an e-commerce company, all of you are facing challenges. So there are those multiple challenges, which is why the... Bilateral treaty has not been possible. A trade agreement hasn't been possible. Even a mini trade agreement hasn't been possible.
0: Which was the talk of town last year.
1: Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, India has lost the GSP privileges it used to have. Uh, um, That is something India actually may get back or may may be pushing the Biden administration to, you know, uh, undo that, uh, the order by former President Trump. But the economic dimension and the challenge where the economic dimension plays into the defense is you need to grow at six to eight percent minimum to be able to be a counter to China. You need to grow at six to eight to grow at six to eight percent minimum. You have to lower protectionism, bring in foreign investment and technology from American, Japanese and Taiwanese, South Korean companies. Uh, For that, you need to open your economy. Uh, And third, uh, you know, unless you have sort of, you know, unless you are growing at a certain pace, your attraction to people in the United States and Western countries reduces right if you are if you're growing at two to 3% your attraction is not the same as when you were growing at 8%. And so that the economic dimension will create a, a sort of a challenge unless India upsets game and the economy starts growing. the third factor, the values based. The two, I mean, that's, that has actually, that used to be the original core of the relationship. If we go back seven decades. I mean, throughout the cold war, despite no military ties, despite almost no economic ties, India being a semi-socialist economy, most US presidents still wanted a relationship with India, because it was the largest democracy, Uh, you know, sort of the relations, the two sort of at core values were what the two countries shared. And that still remains when you look at any, Uh, statement issued when the presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers meet. The first thing they'll say is is democracies, value-based relationship. Um, And so India's turn towards majoritarianism has impacted and will have an impact on its relations with the United States. That is but natural, especially it it had an impact in the Trump administration. The Trump administration, per se, may not have said anything. Uh, but all its reports, uh, discussions on the Hill, demonstrated that. Um, under a Biden administration, which talks about democracy and upholding democracy, there will be discussions. Um, you know, They may not be pushed back against India openly, but there will be discussions behind the doors and on the Hill. And there, there are concerns and they will remain because at the end of the day, um, India's, um, uh, the Indian model, for the west and for the liberal part of the world is is the india of gandhi it's the india which is open india which is secular india which is pluralist india which is uh, which is going which is uh, going to be a future great power and that india is the india they would like on the global stage and so there will be or uh, tension that is but natural.
0: And I think civilizationally too, right, they would like to see that happen. Uh, India that grows and is also more tolerant because that is a direct, you know, contradiction with the Chinese model. Chinese model. And one can then argue and say, look, you can also grow, pull people out of poverty, but not do what the Chinese have done in terms of their developmental trajectory as a country. Um, Regionally, what, where do you see things going? Because I, in the book, you talk about Hindutva seeing Islam as an existential threat. And when I look at the region, I mean, Pakistan obviously has been a perennial problem in terms of India's relations on with Afghanistan even or even beyond. Um, but even we've seen with Bangladesh recently, ties become, there's more volatility in ties. India has embraced Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, but the rhetoric coming out of India makes people from that region uneasy as well. Nepal has had some issues at the same time. So, how do you see this sort of the regional relationship India has with countries evolving, given where the country is domestically?
1: Um, thanks. So, you know, tra- I mean, if we go back traditionally, India's outlook uh, on its neighborhood, South Asia, um, you know, has sort of always been that. So South Asia is the top of the list of priorities for every Indian government. Doesn't matter which political party, which ideology. That's because India believes that it's the Indian subcontinent and that the immediate neighborhood should comprise friendly states. um, And it does not like any foreign powers entering the neighborhood or colluding with its neighbors. Its view always has been that the states, all the countries of South Asia belong to one civilization. So therefore, there's been this belief of a you know sphere of influence that India has, and so every uh, prime minister, right from Nehru to Prime Minister Modi, has put forth a doctrine about the neighborhood. Uh, the current one is called neighborhood first, because there's a belief that you know Delhi would like to reassure its neighbors that you keep India's security concerns in mind, and we will provide you support and assistance. Um. Traditionally, India has managed to succeed also in another thing, which is that all of India, I mean, India is the largest country, right, both by population and size in South Asia. And at one level, all of India's neighbors fear being absorbed into this Indian identity, Indian civilization. And so Delhi has also had to assuage these neighbors. And with the exception of Pakistan, sort of by and large, traditionally, it has succeeded in swaging some of them at different times the problem which has grown in recent times is that the emphasis on you know a majoritarian identity a majoritarian hindu identity in india the desire to go back in history to rewrite it has deepened that latent fear which all of these neighbors have had about india so an in india which is just as the rest of the world feels more sort of, let's say, uh, sort of assuaged when, when the India, which is rising, is, is a status quo oriented, secular, pluralist India, which is growing economically, growing militarily, but is not does not crave any ideological or territorial, doesn't have any territorial ambitions. India's neighbors also have traditionally uh, sort of preferred in India, which is status quo oriented uh, focuses on which is secular and pluralist and tolerant. Um, a major Hindu majority in India causes challenges for its neighbors and I'll give three different examples. The 2019 Citizenship Act hurt India's ties, not just with Bangladesh but also with Afghanistan. There were protests in Afghanistan, a country where the people, where there's very high public support for India. Um, India's relations with Nepal and Sri Lanka have many dimensions, but a lot of it is the ethnic dimension. Kathmandu believes India supports the Madhesis and Colombo has always feared that India interferes in the Tamil issue. Now what has happened in the last few two years is that not only is there external dimension of China uh, playing a role and inciting anti-India sentiments? But leaders in these countries are implying that if Delhi, that Delhi has no right to complain against their majoritarianism, if in the same is happening inside India. So I think at one level the problem is that there's a, there is a need to understand that domestic politics impacts foreign policy. A law in a regulation you pass a desire to rewrite history which youth are doing for popular support or for electoral politics will have an impact on your neighbors and on foreign policy broadly speaking so saudi arabia and uae will not be i mean your relation with saudi arabia uae oman sort of you know other muslim countries will be impacted by what happens inside india It will not just be a factor simply of economics. And there too, you are not succeeding actually right now. Um, So I think all of these play into each other.
0: And I think there's a long term issue with that as well, right? Because particularly on the rewriting history front, because fast over 20 years, 30 years, the next generation of Indian diplomats who've grown up with a different version of history uh, and a different perspective about islam muslims other folks domestically let's say it was for domestic consumption will you know project those views abroad when they engage with the bangladeshi's or with the saudis or with the omanis and that i at least from my perspective long term is a threat because coming from pakistan i have experienced the 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 role that kind of ideological upbringing plays in terms of you know convincing even someone like azulfiqar ali bhutto to write in his memos ahead of the 65 war that we will win this war because each Muslim soldier is worth yeah. three or four, whatever that yeah. quote yeah. was, I, I yeah. may be getting yeah. the number wrong, right? Yeah. So that that is a long-term risk. Yeah,
1: I mean, my actually, my fear is deeper. My fear is, um, I was born in Delhi. I grew up in Lucknow. Uh, most of my friends growing up were Muslims and most of them, my closest friends, remain that. Um, the India, which my friends who are minorities, Muslims or Christians, which they grew up in, was in India, which was different. Their children grew up in an in India, which was again, more like mine, but their grandchildren will not. Uh, so the question is, what India are the current sort of, you know kids who are just born or two or three years old or going to school growing up in? Because that is what will, and here I will use the example of Pakistan again. Sort of, you know, if you sort of, you know, as you know well, what is taught in the Pakistan studies curriculum or is taught in schools across the country has over the decades created a certain, you know, notion of what it means to be a Pakistani or how to look at, you know, other uh, sort of, you know, other religious minorities, whether they're Hindus or Sikhs or Christians or any others. And that is something India had avoided for the last seven decades. And so, you know, I would like it to go back to the in sort of, you know, to go back to teaching history as history is, not rewriting history, because the long term consequences, consequences will be for decades to come.
0: And really quickly, since this is Pakistan, I mean, where do you see India-Pakistan relations going? I was looking at social media yesterday, and I think it was yesterday or day before it was the anniversary of the historic test series in India and Pakistan had won and you know the crowd was quiet but then at the end of it there was an applause and I remember you know when the Indian team came to Pakistan they were applauded even after they won. Um, There was this again I look back at my teenage self you know knowing India as a rival but having the ability to applaud it when it won and, and both across the border people would celebrate that's no longer there. So where do you see in this dynamic like that relationship going, particularly in the light of what's happened over the last few years and the position, frankly, the Pakistanis have taken in terms of outrightly calling Prime Minister Modi a fascist, the government, a fascist con- government, et cetera, et cetera. So do you, do you have any hope in terms of making progress or do you, do you think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better?
1: So I think it will continue as it is. Uh, my hope is, is people like you, and the reason I'll say it is this, is that, you see, at the end of the day, relations between countries are impacted by how the, the average person looks at it. And despite what the, the sort of the establishments on both sides may, may be seeking to portray, at the end of the day, despite everything that the Pakistani establishment did, its fear has always been that if we open relations with India, the Average Pakistani will no longer hate India or no longer want Kashmir, and therefore, it will hurt what we want. I mean, this goes back to what Ayub wrote in his memoirs that you know Nehru wants to open relations uh, in the mid 50s. Nehru had stopped over in uh, in um, in Karachi at that time on his way somewhere, and discussion at the airport with Ayub was that why don't we open people to papal relations? And he said, if I allow that, then they will no longer see India as a threat. So the so that part sort of the thing is that that has remained. It has still not not prevented the average Pakistani from. I remember for the India Australia match uh, on twi- on social media and a lot of media Pakistanis were rooting for India, not Australia.
0: Oh yeah, and they celebrated big time yeah? when India yeah? won that test.
1: So so that shows that you know yes, you can have disagreements on foreign policy, economics, military, but sort of you know at the core the sort of you know there's still a relationship which binds a 5000 year old civilization only 72 year old modern states so i think that sort of the the establishments may continue to do something i do believe at the core the people to people relationship still has potential however i as a foreign policy analyst i will note that i don't see it going anywhere unfortunately because neither side has an incentive the Pakistani side has, has no incentive to improve ties with India uh, because you know um, it doesn't really sort of you know, for that it would have to act on terrorism, which doesn't really seem to be something they are acting on considering Omar Saeed Sheikh has been yes. released. Um, and you know the Kashmir issue means that sort of talking about India revoking the Article 370 and pushing back on India, is more important than discussing tissues of trade and foreign policy. The Indian side, after December 2015, um, and then, uh, you know, especially after Pulwama uh, and Balakot in 2019, has decided that isolating Pakistan, uh, putting pressure on Pakistan for its terrorism-related activities uh, is more important than actually having a conversation with Pakistan. So, there is no incentive on either side. Um, even though technically, you know, it is sort of in history, it's normally been that when there is no incentive, uh, the two sides do start to have a conversation. So, given the seven years, the decades of history, I will not say that there is no chance that they may suddenly start having a conversation, but, you know, it would most sort of, I don't see the, I don't see either side backing off on what is important to the other, Kashmir to one. And you know, acting against terrorism to the other. Plus, the internal politics means that you know, um, uh, identity politics and majoritarianism means that you know, pushing back against Pakistan helps in winning uh, elections as well. So that would be you know uh, how I see the India-Pakistan relationship. Unfortunately,
0: yeah, I think the, the the domestic tale will be wagging the dog for a while to come. I think both sides have boxed themselves in. Um, so I, I agree with your assessment on that, unfortunately, I know we're running out of time. So before I let you go, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot, highly recommend your book to anyone listening. It's fantastic and has a lot of solutions, which we didn't get to a lot of them, but there's much more in the book about what India needs to do to really realize its potential. Before I let you go, what are two or three books that you've recently read on any topic um, that you recommend people pick up and read?
1: Um, actually sort of over the pandemic, I have been rereading books, which I read a long time ago, uh, you know, um, my, my original discipline was history. Um, so, you know, often when sort of, you know, especially something the pandemic hit, I said, okay, let me reread books ago. So the two books, which I reread actually were, um, I'm sure you've heard of Will and Ariel Dura, who wrote the history of civilization. Yep. Uh, so Will Dura brought out a, a book called the lessons of history basically encapsulating what what they've written in those 11 volumes into just one small book. That's perfect for
0: today's age. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I highly recommend that. And the second is the book by an American historian called Barbara Tuckman. She wrote a book called The March of Folly. Um, And that she traces, you know, sort of follies made sort of by by empires and governments from the Greeks and the Romans and the Pope right down to Vietnam. know why governments or establishments or leaders make mistakes and how they sort of you know how it happens even though they are being advised not to do it they still go down the path which will which leads to folly and leads to complications and problems for them
0: i think that second one i'm definitely going to buy and read because it seems fascinating i was i really enjoyed why nations fail i read it a couple of years ago and something i refer back to which also is In that same subject matter about explaining how things happen. Um, Dr. Pandey, thank you once again for joining us. This was wonderful. Um, And again, to those who are tuning in, do check out the book. It's worth your time and and really informative. So great work with that book and keep more of these types of books coming.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. It, It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.